The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. We're going to talk today about the triumphal entry, and, and this event is significant in the life of our Lord because it ushers us into the final week of Jesus' life. Everything has been building up to this climactic moment. This is kind of the crescendo of the song of Jesus' life. It's been leading up to this week. It's Holy Week. We know it as Passion Week. The cross is only days away. And so as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem for what would be the final time, He is greeted by a throng of worshipers who have all converged on Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And they begin to lay their cloaks in the street and they begin to take palm branches and wave them back and forth and they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so it's a day that is marked by celebration. And yet interestingly, It's a day that ends in lamentation with Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. So what's going on with this day and what is Palm Sunday all about? Why do we celebrate it? Let's go ahead and read our text and then we'll talk about it. Pick up with me there in verse 29. It says of of Luke 19. Did I have you turn to Luke 19? Okay, Luke 19, verse 29. As he approached Bethphage, And Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Now go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden on. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say the Lord needs it. I love that. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Hey, What are you guys doing? Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and they put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. A beautiful and familiar story, but let's start by acknowledging that this is a day that Jesus set up. It's a day of preparation. And it stands out from the rest of the recorded events in the Gospels for a couple of reasons. One thing is that it's one of only a handful of stories that finds its way into all four Gospels. So this story, you'll read about it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's only a couple of stories that are in each of the Gospels. Something else that stands out about Palm Sunday is the fact that it marks the only time that Jesus ever orchestrated a public demonstration where he was trying to um, garner as much attention, expose himself to as many people as possible. If you've read through the Gospels, you know that this is atypical of Jesus. Typically, he would heal somebody and then he would tell them, now let's keep this on the download. Don't tell anybody. And he more or less tries to keep a low profile. Why is that? Well, I think it's because he knew that, you know, once the word spreads, he's not going to be able to move. And and so it was just a practical reason until the right time. He knew that they were going to tell people. 
but he wanted to keep ease of mobility uh, for as long as possible. The Gospels tell us about one occasion where the crowd was so thick and Jesus had been performing all these miracles and they wanted to take him by force and make him their king. And yet he just slipped through the crowd and he went on his way. But there's something different about this day, about Palm Sunday. He not only allows himself to be the center of attention, but he manipulates circumstances and sets things in place to maximize his exposure. It starts, the day does, with him sending his disciples into this village just beyond where he is to untie this colt, this donkey, and bring it to him. And I love the fact that as they go into the village, and Jesus has already warned them, when you get there, you're basically committing grand theft auto or what appears like it. Just untie the donkey, and that was their means of transportation back then. And if anybody asks, just say the Lord has need of it, which tells us that Jesus had other disciples than the 12 that knew him and that followed him and that gave to him and supported him throughout his ministry. And it was enough for this guy to know, oh, the Lord needs it. And that was enough for him to surrender the donkey. And, and so they go into the town and they find it just as he says, oh my gosh, here's this donkey. And they begin to untie it. And a guy comes out, what are you doing taking my donkey? And they're like, Jesus said this was going to happen. And they look at one another and they're like, I don't know, the, the Lord has need of it. And it works. The guy says, oh, great. Go bring it to him then, you know. And uh, so they bring it to Jesus. By the way, just a point of personal application. I love how it says they found it just as he said. Every time you do what he tells you to do, you'll find things to be just as he said they would be. When you obey the word of the Lord, the promises of God come true in your life. God knows what the future holds because he's already there. He knows what is in your future. He's mapped it out. He's planned it for you. And he's God. Of course he knows. And so you just walk in obedience and then you find, hey, this is just like Jesus said. Praise the Lord. Now, what's clear in this whole scene is that Jesus is carefully arranging and orchestrating all the details of this day. It was all mapped out in advance. He's calling, as it were, for like a national press conference. There's something special going on. So what is it? And this is something new that the Lord really developed. It's something I knew on one level, but he gave me a new understanding of this week. And I'm so excited to share this with you. Because here, what we have is Jesus presenting himself to the nation as God's lamb. Jesus is presenting himself as God's lamb. You see, we know this day as Palm Sunday. But back then, that's not what this day represented. For the Israelites, this day was better known to them as Lamb Selection Day. Let me talk about that. You see, five days before each Passover, Every Jewish family would select a lamb. Then they would bring it into their home so that they could observe it for the next five days to make sure that it was without spot or without blemish. Because only a perfect lamb could be slaughtered for the Passover meal. And so they would observe it for a period of five days. They'd bring it into their home. And then and after that, they would sacrifice the lamb and they would celebrate the Passover. Now, in light of that, how fitting is it that Jesus would present himself to the nation as the Lamb of God on this day of all days? See, it's five days before the Passover. 
And we know what the Passover is and what it symbolizes and represents. It commemorates God's deliverance of his people from bondage and slavery there in Egypt. And the lamb is central in the celebration of the Passover. But what I want you guys to get is that long before this event, long before that, God had already begun to develop an understanding within the hearts the psyche of his people for the need of a sacrificial lamb. And I want to walk you through this. It begins there in the garden with Adam and Eve. In the aftermath of their sin and rebellion against God, Adam realizes that he's naked. Prior to that, him and Eve were naked and unashamed. But part of the consequence of sin is that they become concerned with the external. And so he sews together coverings for himself and for Eve using fig leaves. And then it says God shows up there in the garden and he confronts Adam and Eve and he basically informs them that that covering is not going to work. A fig leaf isn't going to do a good job covering you. It won't do. And so Genesis 3.21 says this, the Lord made coverings of skin for them. Now think about what that meant and what that entailed. To make a covering of skin meant there was shedding of blood. This would have been the first exposure they had to death. And in that moment, God was setting the precedent that the only covering for sin would come through the shed blood of a substitute. So they have that understanding, but it would be developed because in years later, God cements this understanding within the hearts of his people. You see, Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel, it comes time for them to bring a sacrifice to the Lord. And we read about Cain bringing the first fruits of his vegetables and his fruits. He was a farmer. But Abel, he was a shepherd, and so he brings the first fruits of his flock, and he brings a lamb. And we know that God receives Abel's sacrifice, but he rejects Cain. What's going on there? Well, God is further establishing how he is to be approached. It is only through the shed blood of a lamb. Many years later, fast forward. God tells Abraham, a man named Abraham, to take his one and only son, the son that he loves, a son by the name of Isaac, and he says, go to the place where I will show you, and there I want you to sacrifice your son to me. The only time in scripture where God ever asked for a sacrifice like this. And so it says that Abraham and Isaac journeyed together for three days. Anything significant about that number? Three days they walk together, and on the third day, Abraham lifts his eyes, and he sees the mountain, that place where God had appointed, a place called Mount Moriah, a significant place in Scripture. And and at this point, Isaac and Abraham are journeying up the mountain, and Isaac looks around, and he says, Dad, I see we've got the wood for the sacrifice and everything we need, but where is the sacrifice? And in that moment, Abraham, I believe, speaks prophetically when he says this, My son, God will provide himself a lamb. I love that. He won't provide for himself. He will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. So then Abraham goes and Isaac, in submission to his father, allows himself to be bound there on the altar. And Abraham takes the knife and he's about to plunge it in his son's heart, believing in that moment that the only way that God could not be a liar is if he raises Isaac from the dead. So he believes that God will raise the dead. And he's about to plunge the knife. And in that moment, an angel stops him and says, Abraham, 
I see that you fear God and you haven't withheld your only son. And then at that moment, he beholds and there caught in the thicket by its horn was a ram. And he says, you can sacrifice that ram instead. And so he doesn't go through with it and he sacrifices the ram, not a lamb, but a ram. Fast forward many years later, Abraham's descendants find themselves in bondage and slavery there in Egypt. But God raises up a deliverer by the name of Moses. And through a series of plagues that he brings against the Egyptian people, it finally comes to this climactic moment where God instructs Moses to have every Jewish family take in a lamb on the 10th of Nisan to inspect it for five days, and then on the 14th of Nisan to slaughter that lamb, take its blood and apply it to the doorposts and the lentil beams of the house. And wherever the blood is applied, God says, the angel of death will pass over. And so every Israelite family goes, and they do this. And that night, the firstborn in every home where the blood has not been applied is stricken and taken, and God delivers his people in a miraculous way. Now, to commemorate God's deliverance of the Israelites in this dramatic way, the Lord has his people begin to celebrate or commemorate the Passover year after year after year. They rehearse the story of the Passover. They talk about the blood of the lamb as it's applied to the house. And you can imagine the amount of lambs that are slaughtered throughout the course of history. I mean, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, tells us that at this particular time when Jesus was alive, roughly around 200,000 lambs would be slaughtered every Passover. 200,000 lambs. It was, there was so much blood that the, the brook, the Kidron brook, there the valley that comes down from the temple, it would run red during this particular time of year. But it's not just the Passover that speaks of the lamb because after Moses delivers the people and they make their way into the wilderness, he has them erect a tabernacle and later on a temple. And as part of their daily worship, God says, I want you to bring a lamb. Every morning and every evening, I want you to sacrifice a lamb to signify that this is the means and the way by which you enter my presence. And so this goes on from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus. That is a span of about 1,600 years. Think of all those lambs every morning, every evening, Every Passover, every family takes a lamb and slaughters it. The need for a sacrificial lamb was something that was deeply embedded within the hearts of God's people. Then one day Jesus shows up and John the baptizer sees him walking along the banks of the Jordan River. And what does he declare? But this, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Praise the Lord. Now, fast forward three years. We're not done yet. After healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, casting out demons, raising the dead, another Passover rolls around. Only this time, it's not a dress rehearsal. 
You see, all those lambs and all those sacrifices and all those Passovers for 1,600 years, they were dry rehearsals. They were all foreshadowing and symbolizing the ultimate Passover when God would present his own son, Jesus, as the lamb, as the ultimate lamb. And so on this day, Palm Sunday, God sends his son on lamb selection day and says, here is my lamb. And then over the next five days, Jesus would be in You can read about the Holy Week and how he was poked and prodded by the religious Pharisees of the day to see if he truly was without spot or blemish, and he passed every test with flying colors. And then he goes to the cross. But Isaiah 53 verse 7 tells us, as a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Then on Passover, at the exact moment when the evening sacrifice is taking place, as the high priest is taking his knife and laying it into that Passover lamb, what happens? Jesus, God's lamb, cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. Three words in the English, but just one word in the Aramaic, just tetelestai. It means it's done, it's paid in full. God's lamb was slain for the sins of the world. His blood was shed, praise the Lord. But that's not where the story ends. You see, the lamb shows up again. And the next time you read about the lamb is in Revelation chapter 5. Oh, this is where it gets so good. You see, in Revelation chapter 5, we have this scene depicted for us by John the Beloved. He was on the Isle of Patmos and he was caught up to heaven. And there, while he was caught up in this heavenly scene, he gets a vision of the throne of God. And there in the right hand of God Almighty is a scroll and it's sealed with all of these seals on it. And it says, who is worthy to open the seals and to take the scroll? But he begins to weep, John does, because there was no one who was found who is worthy. But then, but then, but then, Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Let's read this together. It's in your notes. This is what the angel says to John. Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Who is worthy, the angel cries out. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. He alone is worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals, which I believe this document is none other than the title deed to planet Earth itself. And so the lion of the tribe of Judah takes the scroll, but when John sees the lion, he doesn't see a lion, but what does he see? A lamb, a lamb as though it had been slain. And Jesus alone is worthy, amen? And after that, all of heaven erupts in praise. And John describes how there was a multitude of angels, 10,000 times 10,000, which was a colloquialism for saying a, a number that can't even begin to be numbered. 
And Revelation 5, 12 wraps it all up like this. They all sang together, and this is the song we will join in when we get to heaven and we see Jesus. And they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive all power and all wealth and all wisdom and all strength and all honor and all glory and all praise forever and ever and ever. Amen. Praise the Lord. Worthy is the lamb. Amen. Worthy is the lamb. It's all about the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. And from the Old Testament to the new, it's the lamb is coming. The lamb is needed. The lamb is slain. The lamb is risen. The lamb has ascended to the throne. The lamb has taken the scroll. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive all power, wealth, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. Amen. All of that is happening here in Luke 19, as we read about the triumphal entry, it's lamb selection day. It's lamb selection day. Jesus is the lamb. And he's presenting himself as such. But he's also doing something else. He's not just the lamb of God. He is also Israel's king. And that's the second thing Jesus is doing. He's presenting himself as Israel's long-awaited king. Now, all of the Old Testament prophets foretold of this coming king, This Messiah figure who, when he arrived on the scene, he would establish his kingdom. He would usher in a glorious era where he ruled and he reigned from Jerusalem in righteousness and in holiness. And through his actions and through his life and through his deeds and with his words, Jesus demonstrated that he was that prophesied king. And then on this day specifically, there were some things that Jesus did that connected the dots between those ancient prophecies and his actions. You see, that's why he chose the means of transportation that he did. By riding into Jerusalem on the back of a lowly donkey, Jesus is trying to get the people to connect the dots between him and what he was doing and the writings of an ancient prophet named Zechariah. You see, some 500 years before the events described in this chapter unfold, Zechariah tells the Jewish people what to expect and what to look for with regards to the coming Messiah when he writes these words. And this is uh, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Let's read it together out loud. He writes, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So based on that ancient prophecy written 500 years in advance of Jesus, the people should have known to look for their king to come in this unlikely manner. After describing the king as righteous and victorious, Zechariah goes on to say that he will be lowly and riding on the back of a donkey. Now, what other king would you describe using those words, lowly? Kings aren't lowly. They are high and mighty and lofty. They don't arrive on the backs of donkeys. We typically associate kings with opulence and luxury, not lowliness. And yet, as you consider Jesus, as you think about his ministry, is there any better word to describe who he was and how he ministered? When he was born, instead of being placed in a golden crib, 
His first night was spent in a lowly manger. Instead of calling a prince and a princess mom and dad, he was born to lowly peasants. Instead of surrounding himself with the polished and perfect people of his day, he preferred the company of the lowly and the weak. Instead of demanding to be served, he took the lowly position of a servant. And when the time came for him to make his grand public entrance, he chose a lowly donkey as a means of making that entrance. You see, if Jesus is, in fact, a king, as I believe him to be, then I think we would agree that he's a very different kind of king. He is a humble and a lowly king. Amen? And so all the people, they recognize this. In this moment, they begin to celebrate, and they say in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So it's not just a day of celebration. I'm sorry, preparation. It's also a day of celebration, and that's what we see here in verse 38. You see, the response of the people shows that they understood the prophetic overtures of Jesus' actions on this day. And they're quoting here from a specific psalm, a messianic psalm, a a prophetic psalm about the coming king. It's Psalm 118. That's where their words directly are lifted off the pages of the psalm, and they cry them, saying, blessed is the king. Now, Luke fills us in in verse 37. He tells us what was fueling their praise. They were motivated by all the miracles that they had seen. I mean, when the Messiah shows up, is he going to do more than this man? He opens the eyes of the blind. He heals the sick. He even raises the dead. And so they declare peace in heaven, glory in the highest. They're expressing their desire for Jesus to free them from Rome's tyranny. And the palm branches were one symbol of that. Now, they're not mentioned here specifically, but in every other gospel, it talks about the palm branches, and since they play such a prominent role, I want to mention them. Those palm branches, what we have here in front of the pulpit, it was the ancient equivalent of waving an American flag. They were highly patriotic symbols. They were waving their pride and joy, the stars and stripes, right in front of Rome's face saying, here's our king and he will vanquish all our enemies. He will overthrow Rome. He will reestablish Israel once again as the political superpower in the region. This is what their hopes were. This is what they were longing for. But Jesus had a different agenda, didn't he? And it ultimately caused this crowd to turn on him. He came to bring peace, as they were crying for peace, peace in heaven. Uh, He came to bring peace on earth, but not in the way they were looking for. He came to wage war, amen, but not against the Romans. He came to establish his kingdom, but not a political one or the kind they were looking for. You see, Jesus is a different kind of king. And he acknowledged this fact. At his trial, when he was being questioned by none other than Pilate, Pilate looked at him and he said, are you Israel's king? Do you remember Jesus' answer there in John 18, 36? He responded, my kingdom is not of this world. You see, Jesus didn't come to establish an earthly or a political kingdom. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom within the hearts of his followers 
When he went to the cross, he took on an enemy. It wasn't Rome. It was an enemy far greater than Rome. He took on Satan, sin, hell, and death, and he vanquished them. He triumphed them over them through his shed blood. Amen? And the peace he secured was the peace of knowing that you're right with God. It is a greater peace than any external peace this world can offer. It is the peace of knowing that you stand as righteous in God's sight because you are cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Now, the people that day had no interest in that kind of kingdom or in that kind of peace or in that kind of king for that matter, which is why they ended up rejecting him. You know, I I mentioned a moment ago that they were quoting from Psalm 118, which is this messianic psalm, and it's filled with all of these messianic uh, tropes. But, But in that same psalm, that the people were quoting from, if you back up just a few verses before what they talk about, it says something else about the Messiah. And I want to read it together with you. This is Psalm 118, verses 22 through 24. It says this, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Look what God's doing there. He's speaking of this day that we're reading about here in Luke 19. And it's prophetic in its nature. You see, Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. The Jews rejected him. The Bible says he came unto his own, but his own received him not. He came into the world, but the world didn't recognize him. But God raised him up, and he gave them that place of prominence there as the chief cornerstone. I mean, think about this crowd. Just a few days hence, the same crowd that's crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're going to be chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucifying. And in doing that, they fulfilled this psalm. But notice, the Lord has done it. This was all part of God's prophetic plan. They acted in accordance with his divine will. It pleased the Lord to bruise him so that you and I might be given freedom, deliverance, hope, and healing in the name of Jesus. So let us rejoice today and be glad. Somebody say amen. Amen. So verse 39, it says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They understood what was going on. And I love verse 40. Oh, I love verse 40. I tell you, if these were to keep quiet, the stones would cry out. Imagine that scene, that moment, just charged with electricity. And I think in that moment, (laughs) the Pharisees just back down under the glare of the fiery eyes of the king of kings. This moment, this day was ordained for praise. Let us rejoice today and be glad, the psalmist said. Why? Why would the stones have cried out? Because there was something unique and special about this day. God was not only presenting his son as the sacrificial lamb, he was presenting him as the one true king. And if they didn't acknowledge it, then creation itself would. And and there's a sense in which creation is longing for the return of King Jesus. Did you know that the prophets describe that event, that climactic moment to which all of history is marching, and I believe that day is coming soon. 
And it tells us how when Jesus touches the Mount of Olives with his feet, that the mountains and the hills will break forth into song and that the trees of the fields will clap their hands, Isaiah 55, 12. It says that the deserts will blossom like a rose and that the heavens themselves will shake. The point is, all of creation recognizes and acknowledges the kingship and the lordship of our creator. And the question for us is, do we? Do we? He says, if these were to keep quiet, then creation itself would acknowledge me. Do you recognize the rightful rule of Jesus in your heart? Do you worship him? Because if you don't, I'm sorry to say, you're dumber than a rock. (laughs) And I mean that, I'm not trying to be disrespectful here. I'm just trying to tie it to what the scriptures say. Because the rocks themselves acknowledge Jesus as king. The trees of the fields will clap their hands. The mountains will bow to honor him. The valleys will rise to honor him. The waves will clap, crash on the shore. They honor him. The heavens declare his glory. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Day under day utters speech. Night under night utters knowledge. You exist to give Jesus praise. You were ordained for praise. And if that day was made for praise, then this day is made for praise. Someone say, praise the Lord. Let's finish up our story. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. So the scene shifts dramatically, right? It says, if you had even known on this, this day, if you had known what would bring you peace, they're praying for peace, but but they don't know what would bring them peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and you and your children within your walls. They'll not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. It was a day of preparation. It was a day of celebration. And let's wrap up with this. It was a day of lamentation. You see, while the crowd rejoiced, Jesus weeps. This is the second time we find Jesus weeping openly. The first time it happened where? John chapter 11. Yes, thank you. At the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus weeps for his friend. And I like to to point that out because it, it gives us insight into the heart of our Savior. What breaks God's heart? Death, sorrow, the consequences of sin. And according to our text here, the other thing that causes him to weep is when people refuse to bow their knee in humble submission. They refuse to acknowledge Jesus as king. When he sees that, his heart breaks for what will it bring upon them. You see, everywhere Jesus looked that day, he saw reasons to weep. Looking back throughout history, he saw a nation with a history of rebellion. They had wasted and squandered their opportunities. They had hardened their hearts to his warnings and to the words of the prophets. They would closed their eyes to the time of their visitation so that they had missed him. Looking around, he saw religious ritual. And he saw all this commotion. He saw sacrifices taking place there in the temple. But while he saw plenty of religion, he saw very little relationship. The temple itself had become a den of thieves. The religious leaders were out to kill him. The people wanting to crown him on king on this day would within a week turn on him and crown him with thorns. 
Looking ahead, uh, I'm sorry, looking ahead, he saw the terrible judgment that was to come on the nation. And, and true to Jesus' words, in the year 70 AD, the Romans, under the leadership of Titus, would come. And after a siege of 143 days, over a million Jews would die. Others would be taken captive. The city would be destroyed. And the temple itself would be torn apart. And, and, and history records for us how they had fired an arrow at the temple, a flaming arrow, and it caused the gold. The, the temple was so ornate and covered in gold. And the gold, as it melted, it went into the crevices and cracks of the rocks. And so in order to get the gold, the, the soldiers literally took every stone that was part of the temple and they cast it down to get to the gold, thus fulfilling Jesus' words to a T. And so Jesus wept for them and he weeps for us because they didn't understand the day of their visitation. But we have an opportunity. You see, it was a day of celebration. It was a day of lamentation. We ought to be living with anticipation. You see, it's sobering to think that this day, which began with so much rejoicing, ended with Jesus weeping, but it should also cause us to tune in and to pay attention because the very same Jesus who rode on the back of that donkey down the cleft of that hill called the Mount of Olives and made his entrance into Jerusalem through the Eastern Gate, he's coming again and he's coming soon. And, and we've been waiting and anticipating this event for the last 2,000 years, but Bible, the Bible tells us that when he comes back, he's going to come on the back of a white horse. He won't be coming as a lamb, but he's coming as a roaring lion. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to erect his throne, and he's going to rule, and he's going to reign for a thousand years, and we're going to be with him. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your triumphal entry that you came as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that you came as the king of heaven, the lowly and humble king who is willing to go to the cross in our place. If you have not yet received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, this is your moment. Everything in your life has been building up to this crescendo, the day when you bow the knee willingly. You see, one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, but you have an opportunity to do it now willingly. Gladly, you can bend your knee to him. And if you'd like to do that, I want to lead you in a prayer. And you can just say this prayer after me and mean it in your heart. And I'll just invite all of those of you who know and love the Lord to repeat the prayer as well. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for taking my place. Thank you for dying for my sin. I received the gift of salvation. Please write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.